Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. Joining me is David West, retired NBA player, spent 15 years in the league, two-time NBA All-Star, two-time NBA champion with the Golden State Warriors, now the chief operating officer of the Professional Collegiate League, which is launching to provide an alternative to the NCAA. David West, welcome to Pushback. Hey, thanks for having me, man. Wanted to get your thoughts on what's happening in the in the NBA right now. The walkout by players over the shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha. Looks like as we are speaking, play is resuming, but this was a pretty historic action. I'm wondering your thoughts on what has gone down in just these last few days. Yeah, I think it was, um, it was a great move uh, by the guys. Um, it wasn't planned. Um, I think it was more of an... Uh, uh, emotional thing. Um, a few of them had been, uh, you know, some guys have been really shaken up by the video. Uh, you know, I, I, I couldn't tell you one way or another cause I stopped watching these videos years ago. Um, but, um, you know, players were just, um, at a point where, again, I think you see it, you know, these guys have, you know, an ethical line and a moral line, um, that even the player, the people that employ them don't, um, at least haven't been public about it. And so, you know, there, I know there was a couple guys that were fed up and just feeling like, um, you know, we went through all of this and things are still, uh, you know, these police are still doing what they're doing. And so it kind of happened organically. And once one team shut down, the other team shut down and it spread across uh, the sports world, you know, for a day or two. Um, you know, obviously, you know, it's a, it's a symbol, um, but it's also something that, I think is going to resonate with people, and and uh, and it felt like a warning. Um, that's what it, it it came across to me like. Um, you know, it was a warning to uh, these major sports leagues. It's a, mo a warning to uh, you know the political class. Um, you know that people are continuing um, to show that they are fed up with you know, the conditions that exist in this country. And it just so happens that, you know, for black people, you know, police violence and, uh, you know, being the victims of, you know, over-policing, in my opinion, um, and trigger-happy police officers, uh, it's just getting to a point where you're just, you know, you have a whole uh, community of people that are just fed up with the constant trauma and, um, you know, the players are not exempt from that community. Uh, they feel it like everyone else feels it. And um, they're, you know, again, they're compelled to do things like they did the other night. Um, I'm proud of, of the guys in, in a general sense, um, because, again, you know, the spirit that's amongst them now, uh, it wasn't in the NBA while I was in there. Um, so I'm glad that these players are pushing things forward, uh, you know, are making – um, these sort of statements and symbolic gestures that, you know, I think are starting to wake folks up. I do know that um, you know, the NBA um, you know, has heard the guys. I know that they were uh, surprised about what the players were doing. And, um, you know, I know that they weren't expecting guys, you know, to take that step. But I'm glad that, you know, the players did uh, because, again, it, it continues to highlight um, the imbalance, right, and the uneasiness that exists in this society. Let me ask you about how you dealt with issues like this when you were playing. You mentioned that when you were in the league, there was not the political consciousness amongst the association that there is now. 
How mm-hmm. did you deal with that yourself as you evolved politically and developed your own views while still balancing your responsibilities as a player and, and just dealing with the reality of the, of the league that you're in? Yeah, I, you know, I always just tried to uh, maintain my my inner peace. Um, you know, there were, you know, issues, you know, arising all the time um, while I was in the league, but it was always, um, I guess, addressed as a, in, in terms of a singular voice. Um, you know, when I first came in in the early 2000s, um, you know, guys in the league ultimately were still operating under the myth that if you say things about social issues, if you're politically astute in any way, that it'll hurt your chances of having a career um, and it'll hurt your chances of getting endorsements and all these other things. But I was somebody that never, you know, bought into that. So I always felt free to speak my mind and state my positions on different things. And then, you know, the other thing is, um, and I think this is starting to shift a little bit, is when I was in the NBA and um, I had a couple experiences with, um, I guess you would say, black community leaders Um, but my voice, you know, I was told literally like, you know, you're not a big enough star. You're not a big enough name to really, you know, it'd be like, well, okay, it's cool that you're saying whatever you're saying, but what about this guy and that guy? And so, um, you know, for me, uh, I remember that experience. I kind of just took a step back, uh, realized that this was more about, you know, me making sure that I was true to my own soul and my own consciousness. Um, and didn't really worry about whether or not what I said, um, you know, would get the attention that, you know, if somebody else said it. Um, so that's how I used to deal with it. I would just try to, uh, you know, make it, when there were opportunities for me to speak and use my platform to bring attention to issues, I would. Um, you know, when we had the issue with Donald Sterling, um, I was I mean, I was, you know, I was one of the first guys to speak out and call him, uh, you know, what he was and, you know, work to to put pressure on the NBA to get him removed. And, you know, um, we've dealt with, again, at no point in my career was I, did I think that um, the country was at such a moment that we're in now. Um, and really in the last couple of years, um, as we've seen, uh, you know, sort of this, this re um, this reinvigoration of, you know, sort of white supremacist ideology and um, the way that, you know, again, the behavior of public servants and the way that they're interacting with a specific part of the, of, of society, mainly black communities, um, um, continues to devolve uh, and not evolve in a way that um, is going to be beneficial for everyone moving forward. So, I, you know, again, you just, you just got to be true to yourself, be true to who you are. I think that, you know, the other piece is like when I was in the NBA, uh, you know, when, when I started, you know, social media wasn't a thing. And even while I was in the NBA, um, you know, most guys were resistant to it. And then it was the younger, you know, generation of guys that really came in and embraced it and uh, used it, you know, in ter- as, as, a, as a means to access people, but also access information. So guys have access to more information. Uh, to, they have the ability to go out or literally just sit at their phone and um, read what they want, figure out things on their own. Um, and I think that's changed the way that, you know, players act, uh, in terms of their group dynamic, uh, that wasn't existent when I was in there. Did the experiences of, uh, Craig Hodges or Mahmoud Abdul-Rauf, uh, Chris Jackson have any experience on you 
Craig Hodges, who played for people who don't know, who played on that first Bulls championship team. He spoke out against a, a lack of black ownership in the league and other issues. He uh, wore a dashiki to a White House visit with the first President Bush. He was then basically kicked out of the league after that. Yeah. Uh, Mah- Mahmoud Abdul Roof, who refused to stand for the U.S. national anthem, was suspended for a few games and was re- reviled in the media. Did did either of those guys have an impact on you uh, growing up? You know what? Um, they didn't. And I'll tell you why. Um, we didn't... I lived in New Jersey and we didn't, you know, we didn't have cable. I mean, I'll just be honest. We didn't have cable. So I didn't see NBA. I saw NBA basketball once a week. And that was on Saturdays whenever NBA NBC had a game and the mainstream media didn't cover that. So I actually learned about the whole Craig Hodges thing that was I didn't learn about that until it was over with. Right. I think and a lot of us were like that, because even when when we got to the NBA, there was still when I got to the NBA, there were still parts of what he did that I wasn't aware of. And I think, um, again, those instances now would be covered entirely differently because you could go to your phone, you could sort of see what's going on, you could hear a million different perspectives about uh, what was going on. And I think back then, um, I didn't, you know, we didn't hear about it. Um, Same thing with with Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. It was covered in a way that didn't allow for us to really dig into. And so most guys won't admit this, but even with Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, you don't, you don't, you didn't know about that or really learn about the particulars of what that was about until you get into the NBA. And then people start, you know, guys are talking about, you remember this, remember that. And that's where that came, uh, you know, from me. So I didn't really get influenced by either one of those guys. Um, cause I learned about what they actually did much later. Um, and I was already sort of fixed in my, in my ways. Um, so I've never, uh, you know, I don't think there's, there's a political sports figure that I've, uh, admired or had to look to for guidance. I mean, other than, um, you know, sort of the, the ideological understanding that, uh, that Ali had in terms of the way he looked at the world, the way he viewed black people and the way that he, uh, spoke about imperialism. I mean, that is the, um, you know, part where I would say I was I am influenced by sort of his ideological understanding of of the larger picture of the globe and um I don't know if players back again in the early 2000s um you know we didn't have social media you know and it wasn't something it was something that we frowned upon so um the information like I said the information wasn't there and if you're an athlete and um, you know, you're somebody that, again, you, you're playing this game where you're bouncing between your professional life and then the commitment that you have to your own conscious. Um, you know, I know I found myself sometimes feeling alone, um, feeling very lonely. I went through a period where I was reaching out to various guys. I didn't think to reach out to, you know, Craig Hodges or, or, uh, or Mahmoud Abdurraouf, but I was just trying to reach out to different people that I thought could help sort of steady my focus and, and help me balance and figure out how to make this this uh, this thing work. You mentioned earlier Donald Sterling, the former owner of the L.A. Clippers, who was kicked out for after he was recorded making some racist comments. Has there ever been talk amongst the players that you've heard of of the players just forming their own league and owning the league themselves? I think, you know, we've had 
you know, guys have had those conversations. You have those 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 um, those ideas float. Um, you know, this generation of players, I would say, are the guys that you know, if if it was a possibility, they are a step closer to it um, than the group of players that I was uh, a part of. Right? The guys who are no longer in the NBA versus the guys who are in, in the NBA currently. I think these guys are a lot more business savvy. Um, and they, you know, they potentially have the mindset to do something like that. Obviously, it's a, it's a large undertaking, but um, it comes with the concept, right, that you should own your own talent and you should own and control your talent. And um, there should be sort of this cohesion between uh, those at the executive level and the players. Um, there should be representation, you know, both ways, particularly when you have a league that's predominantly black. So. You know, I think that that conversation has come up. But like I said, this generation, if there was ever a generation or era of athletes that would push that, uh, these are the guys that would do it. And speaking of owning your own talent and being paid for it, let's talk about the NCAA. You are part of this league, the Professional Collegiate League, launching as an alternative to the NCAA. For people who have not heard of it yet, can you explain the concept behind it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the PCL is the Professional Collegiate League. Um, we are working to create a model that compensates athletes um, uh, as a first uh, as a first step to their collegiate careers. We believe that uh, you know college basketball players and college athletes in general generate a market, uh, generate billions of dollars, uh, and they're the only people that in effect aren't monetarily compensated from the money that they help generate. Um, everyone else is compensated. Everyone else is able to build their career. Uh, everyone else is able to, you know, use the money that these players from their labor generate to support their families. And the players literally can't do the same. So we've, we've carved out a model that we think um, is the model of collegiate sports of the future, where um, athletes, again, uh, will be compensated. Uh, there will be rev shares with the athletes. Uh, they will have an opportunity to professionalize themselves immediately after um, high school, even if they're not necessarily an NBA talent and ready to just jump into the league right away. Uh, you know, our program is a five-year program. We separate education and athletics. So we put um, our athletic competitions and things like that uh, in the summer so that um, our players and the guys, the athletes in our system can enjoy uh, being collegiate athletes to the degree that they're developing themselves as professionals. Um, they have the ability to go to four-year universities, two-year universities, technical colleges, community colleges, trade schools, uh, or get into, you know, online uh, curriculums, which, you know, most people are in right now anyway. So um, that's, you know, what we're doing in a nutshell. We believe in compensation uh, for collegiate athletes who help, you know, generate billions and billions of dollars for, for other people. Your, the concept of your league even has the force of what I think is one of the most extraordinary court rulings I, I've ever read, where there was a judge recently who wrote that the NCAA acts as, quote, a cartel of buyers acting in concert to artificially depress the price that sellers could otherwise receive for their services, unquote. And their judge is talking there, the sellers being the players. It's like the only... Uh, I can't think of any other case in this country where there's such a conspiracy to basically deny people right. of of their market value. It is a cartel. I mean, like cartels is a great uh, word for it. What kind of response have you gotten from from the young players that that you've spoken to so far? Yeah, we've so we've got um, you know guys are definitely interested. I think you, you saw a pattern of players making decisions to 
to uh, go overseas and play as opposed to, to um, going into the collegiate system um, as it stands. Uh, you know, we've had conversations with all levels of players and we're getting interest um, because we know that players now are looking for different options, right? The guy, the players are the ones that have the fewest amount of choices in this space. Um, coaches, you know, can hop around from job to job. Coaches can work on um, career elevation in these stages. And literally the athlete just has to be an athlete, uh, has to be, you know, players can't make this college experience beneficial for them outside of what you know the ncaa and these institutions are willing to provide at a minimum they fight tooth and nail to deny players access to more benefits and um you know guys are starting to wake up you know you know know, a few weeks ago we saw that the pac-12 players were making statements i know there were some big 10 players making statements most collegiate uh football programs have postponed um their their seasons at least until january a lot of programs have canceled all you know fall sports and have started looking toward 2021 but you know it is the last it is one of the only systems um that is explicitly uh built around exploitation and you know the system itself um operates in a way that it masks its true intent and people get caught up in you know school nostalgia and they get caught up in sport uh, in the idea of competition, they get caught up in, you know, the feelings that, you know, these tournaments bring and these different um, you know, highlight points during the year where this school is come rivalry games and things like that. And that is enough to outweigh the fact that the system is exploiting these guys. It's literally exploiting these players. And so, um, again, we're, we're against exploitation at all levels, but um, in terms of the impact that we feel we can have in the sports space, uh, we felt like this was a challenge that we should take up and fight. And we should make sure that people understand um, that there is another way, right? That we can create another option. We can create other options for these guys to meet their needs as 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 athletes. And, you know, to be honest with you, most guys who go to school aren't necessarily going to school for school, right? Your Your academic schedule is literally created around how often you can be available for your sport. So oftentimes you, you're, you're in school and you're not studying what you want to study. So, you know, I went to I went to Xavier um, um, and I'm now back in school getting my master's in history because history is what I really wanted to study. But I remember um, the timing. Uh, we had practice from three to six in the uh, in the afternoons and some of the history courses were in the afternoon. So I couldn't go that that way. Um, and it's a very, very interesting way. I think that um, you know, college athletes have to make decisions about their, about their lives, about their futures, um, based on again this situation that is that is at its core an exploitive situation where these universities and these institutions, you know, extract more from the talent than they, you know, actually give the talent in terms of what the university is taking from them. They can use their name, image, and likeness for the you know, for the for the duration that they're in the school. But then also as these guys leave the universities, these universities are still profiting off of these players. And, um, you know, every single year as guys come in, um, again, you, you see career opportunities for coaches, career opportunities for athletic directors and all the different um, folks throughout the system. And the only guys that are sort of stuck in one place with very few options, very limited choices and are penalized when they make decisions that, you know, again, if a guy decides to transfer, he gets penalized. If a guy 
uh, you know, again, doesn't meet a certain standard in courses that you're not necessarily giving him the best um, uh, access to information and resources to be the best he can be. That's why, again, we, we joke about it in, in the sports world, but the idea of guys taking basket weaving and cookie cutting and stuff like that um, is a reality because they have to be available to prep and play their sport. Um, so again, you, you underserve these athletes at the same, uh, and on the other hand, you're literally exploiting them and using them, um, you know, as long as they're in, in your grasp and in your control so that what they produce, uh, profits and benefits everyone, but themselves individually and the communities that they come from ultimately. What aspect of, of history are you, are you focusing on in grad school? Uh, well, African-American history. Um, I haven't decided what, um, what, what era, um, but I want to, you know, I've done a lot of studying on my own and research on my own over the last, you know, 20 years or so. Um, and I want to, you know, really challenge myself and see what I, uh, see what I've, what, I, what I've got. I mean, um, see what I can see if I can validate what I've learned on my own. Uh, so I'm, I'm going for a, a master's in African studies, um, African history, um, or African diaspora studies. One of those, one of those, um, focuses. Recently, there's been a lot of attempts to silence NBA players by bring by uh, bringing up China. There was this controversy a few months ago when you had a uh, executive at the Houston Rockets tweeting something out in support of the Hong Kong separatist movement. Then you had um, a bunch of right wing lawmakers trying to get trying to basically lecture NBA players for not speaking out about Hong Kong while the NBA was playing in China. You got involved in that. You spoke to a lot of players from what I've read. What did you tell them and, and what are your thoughts on, on that whole situation? Um, well, I, I first told the players, I mean, point blank, right? It was like this this weapons, massive uh, weapons of mass destruction type hysteria that these folks were trying to um, build upon and you know the 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 hardest thing i guess about um being in the nba is that and i experienced this right people people want to control what you have access to because they know the the enormous platform that players have and even when you're not like a star player superstar player whatever you still have a significant platform because you have access to these superstar players, right? You have access to the other guys um, who then could make, um, um, you know, a big social statement or make some kind of impact. And so that environment um, to sort of shelter guys uh, is in place. And it, 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 you know, again, you people are very careful about what they, you know, quote unquote, try to put in front of uh, NBA players or put on professional athletes' plates. And when this Hong Kong thing came up, um, because it's a historical point, right? This is not, it's not a, uh, a simple contemporary issue. Um, this is a historical point that is deeply steeped in colonization. Um, it's deeply steeped in uh, imposition and um, cultural uh, 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 imposition where you're, you're stepping on and trying to, um, uh, like you said, uh, create this separatist movement, um, and disconnect, uh, a, a place from its ancient origin, right? So Hong Kong has always been a part of China. Um, Hong Kong was the colonial outpost of the West during the colonial period of China. And a lot of guys don't, didn't know that. So I made sure that the players that I spoke to knew that. 
and knew that what they were being roped, trying to be roped into was was not a good look. And um, they were responsive. And I think because the other thing is because a lot of guys have been to China themselves. They have actually been in China, have played over there, have either you know done tours over there, uh, marketing events over there. They understand the society firsthand um, and they understand um, the way that people are organized and they're organized in a different way socially than we are. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's bad. doesn't mean that it's um, um, that this it's, it's worth less just because it's different. And, you know, the, the, the irony of it all is, you know, black people are the ones that have had to, you know, we've had this reality for some time, right? We understand, um, um, you know, imperial adventurism to the degree that, you know, we understand, most of us understand the impact that, you know, imperialism has had on our culture, you know, speaking of people who have descended from Africa and then, you know, generally what's happened in the conditions of African-Americans in American society. So when you start talking about human rights, it is not hard for guys to realize, wait a minute, you're talking out both sides of your mouth because the human rights that you're claiming you're fighting for and standing for in Hong Kong, you don't support the marginalized folks of this society who are fighting for their human rights and their rights to survive, right? So they don't even realize the contradictions, I think, or maybe they do, and they just don't give a fuck, you know what I mean? But the the contradictions that exist in trying to get a group of black players to speak out against um, uh, a government or a system um, that isn't affecting them personally right so this is the same argument that ali made right about about vietnam like they haven't done anything to me they've never called me nigger and you want me to go over there and kill them right so it was that it's that understanding that i think players got quite early and you know it despite the ridiculous media circles and circuits that they tried to put uh, the guys didn't go for it, and, they, and they're not going to go for it. Um, you know, the NBA as a corporate entity has to play the game, uh, but the players, you know, uh, uh, don't have to go along with the game. Um, and, you know, again, you're talking about the largest basketball market in the world in China. You know, basketball is their, is their national sport. And, um, you know, you've got more kids playing in China, playing basketball in China than we almost have citizens in this country. Um, so for, you know, for the players and even for the NBA, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a business proposition that you're asking, you know, particularly some of these rogue, um, um, senators and whoever else they are are asking the NBA to really sacrifice their business and uh, ask the players to sacrifice their business for a political agenda, which I don't think, uh, the guy should have to do. Yeah. I don't know much about China, but when I see people like John Bolton, uh, meeting yeah. with Hong Kong separatist leaders. And I see some of the propaganda that were, you know, where now Mike Pompeo and, and Donald Trump are now the self-appointed guardians of uh, human rights in China. It just, you know, <laughs> on, on the face of it, it's ridiculous. I don't know if you saw that video that came out recently of a bunch of kids in China pl- circling and all dribbling a basketball. Yeah. So I thought that was beautiful. I thought that was, a you know, a nice display of cooperation and concentration. And yet... I don't know if you saw the reaction, but it's like people were freaking out as if that this was somehow some kind of propaganda uh, exercise for young Chinese kids. Wow. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, you know, if you've ever been to China, you will see that in the morning. 
you'll see large numbers of people doing group exercises in parks and doing different types of things like that. Um, that was at a school. Um, and like I said, basketball is, is something that, you know, the young Chinese athletes, I mean, they love basketball. They play basketball and it's a part of their learning. Um, and it was, you know, I've seen other videos, but yeah, that was a, that was a nice video because I, you know, it's actually something I want to try with a group of kids I work over here, you know, to see how difficult it actually is to do that because they were in sync, they were working together and you get the idea, right? It's, it's about cooperation and everyone being on the same page and everyone being focused on the same goal. And, um, you know, that's, I guess that is a, a symbol for sort of what, you know, Chinese society, uh, is. And it just shows how backward the elite culture of our society is that we can we look at a bunch of kids and, right. and feel right. contempt towards that and look to, it's 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 crazy. Let me ask you a basketball question as a power forward. You came in, by the way, in the greatest NBA draft class of all time. LeBron, Melo, D Wade, Chris Bosh. Um, you know, in recent years, there's been this shift towards small ball. You know, your team, the Golden State Warriors, was a part of that. But now you have the Lakers with a pretty big team. Um, Anthony Davis, uh, you know, LeBron, obviously, Jamel McGee, right. Uh, right. Dwight Howard. I think they're like one of their smallest players is Danny Green, who's like, I don't know. It's right. pretty. He's huge. He's tough. Danny's yeah. big. Yeah, Danny's so, big too. Right. So how do you feel seeing like a like a, a team of big men uh, doing so well? Well, you know, um, I, the small ball thing is, so the small ball thing is a reaction, is really a reaction ultimately to Steph Curry. Mm. And I've been trying to explain people this, like, you know, Don Nelson played small ball a little bit. Um, but he was what he was trying to do was he was trying to just figure out a way, you know, to attack sort of the traditional basketball um, environment. Um, but I wouldn't say that Nelly, you know, uh, even when he experimented with it, was, you know, com did it in a way that forced the, the rest of the league to change. Um, so the unique thing about what Steph has done is Steph has weaponized the three point shot. He and Clay both have weaponized the three to a degree beyond analytics, right? Because they were shooting threes before the whole analytics thing came in. These two guys perfected the art of shooting and, you know, the timing of shooting and what the idea of what a good shot is, uh, you know, what a three point, I mean, Steph with the range, right? You see all the guys shooting long threes now, um, you know, Clay, you know, sprinting, shooting threes. It basically shifted because you can't defend those two guys specifically with traditional big guys who don't want to leave the paint. And so once they're not playing, now you can go back to traditional basketball uh, because simply other teams that play small don't carry the threat that Steph and Clay are. Right. So you can you can play small teams do play small and play smaller lineups. But it's not as effective, meaning, you know, world championship level, you know, dynasty level effective because of the ability of those guys to shoot the ball. And so small ball is kind of tricky. The Lakers literally because you don't have to you know, you don't have you didn't have to account for Steph and Clay this year. There's no need to play small. You can go back to traditional lineups. I mean, the Lakers play, you know, the lineups that they play when they've got, you know, Kuzma and Danny Green, LeBron, JaVale and 
And AD, I mean, the smallest guy on the floor is Danny, 6'6", 230 pounds. Um, they're huge. And that's what I've always felt like, particularly with them coming down the stretch, is that their size um, is just going to be too much. When, you, when you've got Anthony Davis, JaVale, and then you bring Dwight Howard off the bench. Um, uh, again, you bring Kuzma off the bench. You're bringing size off the bench. Um, it just makes the proposition of challenging them um, that much more difficult. But small ball itself, again, I, you know, I've, I look at it from the perspective of it was really weaponized because of Steph and Clay's ability to shoot the ball. And, you know, defense is just being, you know, resigning to the fact that the only way you can deal with these guys is to have similar size out there who can deal with their speed, you know, their constant up and down pace and you know their ability to push the ball in, in, in such a way that forces bigger slower guys off the floor you mentioned analytic analytics which i had forgotten about that was a big fad for a while is that legit or was that just kind of uh you know one of these like front office fads oh yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i mean you know the analytics thing um got to a it, it's at a point now but it had gotten to a point where you can use analytics like a hammer, like a tool, right, in a toolbox. So you got this toolbox, and analytics is one of your tools. It's a screwdriver. It's a drill. But it cannot be the basis by which you build the home. Like, you can't just say, I'm going to build a home, and I'm only going to use this tool to build this home. That's when, you know, the I think the line gets crossed, and you get caught in a situation like the Houston Rockets were in a few years ago where you're such an analytically based team that when it was time for you to make an, a basketball adjustment that I felt like would have taken them, you know, beyond the Warriors. They lost to the Warriors when Kevin Durant went down, but because they weren't, the Rockets weren't in a position to post up and they, they didn't have a post player, they didn't have a guy they could throw the ball into in the post, they couldn't adjust the way that they played. So, you know, you lose, you know, the Warriors lose KD um, and they can't adjust. You know, they've had other 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 moments um, and there are other teams that do it as well. But when you try to use analytics as the only tool by which you create sort of build this house, um, it's just not going to work. You know, and then ultimately the whole analytics wave is anti-Jordan, you know, and that's probably, you know, when I realized that is where that was the point where I just decided to say, well, it's just, it's a bunch of garbage because analytics is against post-ups, particularly, you know, mid post post-ups and mid range jumpers. Uh, and, uh, how can you be against mid range uh, jumpers? That's, that's crazy. That's yeah. Right. And, and, and in essence, that's everything that Michael Jordan was. So for you to have a basketball philosophy that basically in my mind is anti Jordan, um, just doesn't make sense. I mean, it just doesn't doesn't make sense because, in essence, basing uh, 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 you know analytics at the base of your basketball logic, Michael Jordan shouldn't have been able to do what he did. Yeah, and I, and I right? think of all the elite players, you know, Kawhi, Kobe, everyone's got a great yeah. mid range. Exactly, exactly. So I, that's why I said it's it's a tool in the toolbox. You know, you can use it to analyze, you know, stats and games after the fact. Um, but as far as using it to to literally determine and build teams and select players like, well, we're going to select this guy because he can, you know, shoot corner threes and then you ignore the fact that he can't move his feet on defense. 
can't jump, doesn't have you know good sense of uh, of, of backside help and all of the different um, detail pieces that that you need to be successful at the pro level, you end up having guys who are one trick ponies. Like literally, you have a guy on your team that can do one or two things, um, as opposed to having you know fundamentally sound guys up and down your roster, which um, um, you know Golden State. I, I thought tricked a lot of people uh, in terms of how they approached the game because people thought that the Warriors were an analytics-based team, and that's just not what they are. Um, they take the best shot available. If you give Steph 20 layups in a game, he's going to take 20 layups. If you give him 20 elbow mid-range jumpers, he's going to take those. But if you also decide that you're not going to guard him three or four feet behind the three-point line, he's going to take those first. Right? Same thing with Clay. You know, he's going to take what you give him. He can score at all three levels. Um, and he's not necessarily just shooting threes. If you get up on the three-point line and force Clay to drive and give him layups all night, he's going to drive and get layups all night. So um, I think people have that part of them confused because they don't, they're not looking at analytics and saying, Steph, you got to shoot this amount of shots. Or you got to, you know, shoot from this spot on the floor only. You know, I work with high school kids, some high school kids, and I had a high school kid tell me this, this summer that his coach literally didn't let him shoot anything other than layups or threes. But his coach is looking at uh, analytics layout and saying that the highest percentage shot, right, the, 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 that, you know, you have a better ratio of scoring more points if you shoot threes and then obviously, um, you know, getting shots at the rim, um, but completely disregarding the space in between. Um, so, again, the game is what it is. The game is always going to dictate how it is to be played. And what I mean by that is, right, bigger, stronger, faster players, uh, the guys who are, who, are, who are more skilled, the guys who have uh, a greater grasp of the game from top to bottom on both sides of the floor, ultimately are going to rise to the top. And if you're not a complete player, if you're just a one-trick pony, if you're just an analytics-style player, eventually you're going you're gonna to run out of, uh, uh, of places to climb because you're going to hit a ceiling. You played during a golden era of power forwards, you know, uh, KG... Dirk, mm -hmm. Tim Duncan, I mean, this go on forever. How did you how did you prepare for all that? How did you prepare for going up against these guys? And when did you realize that you actually were were an all-star? Yeah. Uh, you know, it took some time. Um, uh, you know, because I'm I'm somebody and I've always told people this, like I got my confidence through basketball. Like I wasn't a very confident kid. Um, one, because I was I grew late. My height came late, but everything else came early. So I had big ass hands. I was wearing a size, I mean, I wear a size 18 now, but I was, before I was even 6'2, six, 6'1 six, or 6'2, I was in a 17. Um, you know, I was in a size 16 in like the seventh or eighth grade. Um, and so I always had a big foot. And so clothes fit differently. And I was super awkward with long arms, but I wasn't, you know, taller than six feet. And then when I grew, and it all sort of fit together. I got my confidence. And, you know, basketball has always been a place where I've been the most confident. On the court is where I was the most confident in my life. So um, when you go into the NBA and then you realize, like, the guys that you looked up to, you know, I was a, I'm a huge Tim Duncan fan. He's, like, my favorite, one of my favorite players. Him and David Robinson were, like, my favorite players growing up. Uh, um, you know, I had posters of KG on my wall. And, um, you know, when you see uh, – these guys up close and personal for a second, you know, you're wondering whether or not you can, you know, you can match up. And then 
Um, and it wasn't until my third year in the league where I finally got a chance. I got the starting job and I had a coach tell me, he said, look, man, you know, you go out and you play the game the right way. He said, but you got to start challenging these guys that you're matching up against on the stat sheet. He said, so, you know, you're playing against, you know, Dirk Nowitzki and Tim Duncan and uh, Sharif Abdurrahim and Elton Brand and uh, Zach Randolph and, uh, you know, whoever. I mean, KG, uh, it was a lot of guys in there at the time. Uh, he said, you, you know, you need to match them on the stat sheet. You, know, you need to, you know, win matchups. And I had never thought about that. You know, I never looked at the game that way. Like, I got to win my, my statistical matchup against the guy that I'm lined up against. So then, you know, I'm looking at him as a third-year player, still fairly young, and I'm saying, man, you want me to try to match against Dirk Nowitzki? You want me to try to match against, you know, these guys who are averaging 20, 25, 30 points a game or whatever it is? Um, but I needed that shot of confidence, you know, because it was at that point that I, you know, started taking more pride in myself in terms of, I got to challenge these guys. And yeah, they, you know, they're, they're, they're more gifted than I am physically. They can do things that I can't do, but, um, you know, I can, I can give the effort. Uh, I, I, I could have an impact on a game that would allow me to, to win, even if I couldn't match you statistically point for point or shot for shot, rebound for rebound. Uh, I found ways to be effective, but then also uh, when the games were on the line to make sure that my team came out on top. So, that was the way I, I, I approached the whole the whole time I was in the league, but particularly early on when I had to figure out a way how to, you know, how to match these guys, how to get to where they were uh, in terms of their ability to, you know, to score and carry their teams, but then also you know, their unbelievable talents. And uh, one thing I didn't do and I still don't, I never do is I don't lie to myself. So I never got to this point in my life where I was trying to convince myself that I was of their caliber. Right. I'd never tried to convince myself, yeah, man, you you the same as KG or you're on the same level as Dirk. No, these guys are all time greats. I mean, these guys are legends. These guys are some of the best best players to ever play the game. And me having a mindset like that, I thought was more detrimental than me being realistic about who I was, um, knowing my limitations as an athlete, but then literally trying to max out. Um, you know, so that meant getting stronger. That meant developing a, a you know, a mid-range jumper. That meant figuring out, you know, you know, just overdosing people with pick and pops and pick and rolls and then post-ups and, you know, using my hands on defense, using my voice on defense, all the different things um, that I had to do and I had to focus on to make sure that I was effective on the floor. But, you know, it was a, it was a, uh, it was a journey in terms of, Setting, settling myself down to a point where I could say, okay, you know, you can go out here and compete against these guys on a night in, night out basis, regardless of, you know, you know where who they are. You know, there's a standard that you set for yourself, and you hold yourself to that standard regardless of who who's matched up against you. David West, the Professional Collegiate League, it's launching next year. Yep, yep, 2021 this summer. All right. Well, look, I really appreciate your time, David. Thank you uh, so much for joining me. Yes, sir. Thanks, Aaron.